FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm very glad you could all be with us for our show today. It's really, I think, going to be a special conversation that I've personally been looking forward to for a long time now. I'm going to introduce our uh, our special guest um, and uh, uh, one of the favorite panelists of Political Rewind who's joining us for the show today in just a moment. But before I do, uh, just a quick comment about some of the emails, tweets, um, and other uh, messages I've been getting from you in the last few days, especially about the Georgia election law. Many of you are writing to me asking if we would please break down uh, this aspect of the law, that aspect of the law. And, And what I'd like to point out to all of you is that if you have a chance either on the podcast or by going online to gpb.org slash PR, you can listen to the show we did just the day before yesterday, on Tuesday, uh, the 6th of April, in which we did walk through uh, the major uh, aspects of the bill, the major points uh, in the bill, and try to explain um, what the issues are, Uh, what they actually do as opposed to what some people think they do. And and I think the show does a fairly good job of giving you pretty good information about some of the real problems with the law and some of the things about the law that may not be as bad as they seem. So we'll continue talking about it, of course, as the news uh, warrants it in the days and weeks ahead. But that would be a great starting point for those of you who have asked me a lot of questions about what this law actually does. All right. With that in mind, let's talk about today's show. Um, We're going to talk about racial injustice, uh, how we achieve racial equality at a time that I think many people agree uh, is we have reached an inflection point. Since our summer of discontent last year, the Black Lives Matter movement growing in strength as a result of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and obviously others, Uh, There's been more and more focus on what we need to do as a nation to deal with racial injustice. But so often that conversation has been built around how racism has hurt black people. And of course, it has. But our guest today, Heather McGee, tells us that we ought to look at reframing the conversation. Certainly she would agree that black and brown people have been hurt badly by uh, racist policies and racism in general in this country. But that maybe the way that we can make real change is by looking at how it has disadvantaged all of us and put us in a position where we might be able to come together to find solutions to some of our problems. Heather McGee joins us today. Her new book is The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It debuted, I think, at number three in the a New York Times a not, nonfiction bestseller list. And Heather, I think it continues to be up near in the top five of the um, nonfiction books in uh, the New York Times list. You, of course, spent 25 years at Demos, a progressive policy institute, a think tank, a think and do tank, I think is what Demos <laughs> likes to say about itself. You were president of that organization. You're now chair of Color of Change, which is a, a progressive nonprofit that works on racial justice issues online, figures out how you can use online campaigns to work for racial justice. And Heather, I think many of our listeners are used to seeing you on, you're, you're a popular figure on a lot of the news shows. You're on MSNBC, you're on Meet the Press, uh, you're a very prominent presence in uh, shows uh, that talk about politics. So thank you so much uh, for being with us. And before I uh, uh, turn this over to you, I also want to say Professor Andre Gillespie, the Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, is with us. Uh, Heather, you should know that Andre Gillespie, hands down, is in, oh, the top three of most popular people who appear on Political Rewind, and I'm thrilled. She makes it an even better uh, a day for me on this show, so 
Uh, thank, first, Andra, thank you for being here. I'm happy to be a part of this conversation, and it's really nice to meet you, Heather. Professor Gillespie, it's a real honor to be with you. And Bill, thanks for having me. Good morning, Georgia. Uh, um, let me start, if I can, Heather, let me start by playing a clip from President Biden. On January 26th, as you well know, he signed four executive orders that deal with uh, trying to work on racial justice issues. And he made a speech uh, about the signing. And I've got to say, it, you might as well have written the speech for him. Uh, I hadn't read the book at the time I heard him give this speech, but in looking at your book, reading your book, I thought back to these words that President Biden spoke. For too long, we've allowed a narrow, cramped view of the promise of this nation to fester. You know, we've, uh, we've bought the view that America is a zero-sum game in many cases. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get the job, I lose mine. Maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. We've lost sight of what President Kennedy told us when he said, a rising tide lifts all boats. And when we lift each other up, we're all lifted up. You know, and the corollary is true as well. When any one of us is held down, we're all held back. Heather McGee, Biden may very well have read your book at that point. He certainly <laughs> expresses very clearly a major thesis of what you write about, yes? Yes, absolutely. And Bill, you know, it's funny. I obviously, as soon as that happened, uh, at the end of the day, I somebody sent me the speech in an email, but I'd actually never heard him say the words until then. Um, so thank you for uh, playing that audio. Uh, it's quite moving um, for me as somebody who's, been working for, uh, you know, over two decades to try to answer the question, why can't Americans seem to have nice things? Um, you know, I'm an economic policy person, and I want this country to have a broad, robust, inclusive, and diverse middle class. I want health care and child care and paid family leave and a living wage job and affordable housing, <clears throat> excuse me, to be, you know, the basics that everyone in this country can attain uh, not out of reach for most Americans as it is today. And I discovered in the course of writing to some of us that it really is that zero-sum worldview that is our biggest barrier to progress. The idea that progress for white people, excuse me, the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense and that we're not actually on the same team. There's an us and a them. And so what often happens is it leads to distortions in our policymaking that make our policies stingier, more cruel, more punishing because of this false idea of, of racial competition and this false belief in a hierarchy of human value that some groups of people are simply better and more deserving than others. You know, um, in, it, you obviously talk, too, about how discrimination, uh, racial uh, discrimination, has in fact had as big a negative impact on whites in many cases as it has on blacks. And the central metaphor in the book for that, in fact, lends itself, it's the cover art of the book. It's a white boy jumping into a swimming pool, and a, we see a black girl to the side climbing up a ladder. Talk to us about the swimming pool story of uh, that is such an important part of how you discuss how whites pay a price for racism as well as blacks. That's right. Well, um, I'm happy to, and I want to be clear that throughout the book, I, I'm, I illustrate how painfully true it remains, of course, that racism hits its target, right? First and worst, it's black people and other people of color. And yet, um, it's not as easy as as we often think, to, to escape uh, the cost of distortions and poisonous policies and politics. So the story of the swimming pool is the metaphor that I carry throughout the book, because in the 1930s and 40s, the country went on a, a building boom of public amenities, public libraries and parks and schools, and yes, these grand resort-style swimming pools, these pools that could hold thousands of swimmers at a time. And they were part of an overarching, overarching government ethos that said, you know, part of the sort of New Deal born in the crucible of the Gilded Age and the Great Depression emerging out of that, this commitment by government to work 
to make the standard of living of Americans higher and higher. That was sort of how they measured their impact. And and that meant massive public investments in housing, in the mortgage market, uh, in, in building uh, public infrastructure, in making sure that labor standards were high and the right to collectively bargain was enforced. Um, it meant through to 1944 to the GI Bill, offering a way for um, so many GIs to, to go uh, into college and, and home ownership. And, and it included these public pools, which were actually, you know, as you all know in the South, right, actually a pretty important piece of, of life uh, and public health. And yet, virtually everything I just described from the New Deal through to the GI Bill was segregated or for whites only, either explicitly, as in the case of mortgages and the housing subsidies, all of which the government denied uh, explicitly to black families, or through to the GI Bill, which should have benefited hundreds of thousands of black GIs and didn't because of segregation in the housing market and in college. And so were the pools as well, either by law or by custom and enforced by violence, segregated and for whites only. And so that meant that this great middle class that had been created and the pools that served that great middle class were often for whites only. And when the civil rights movement empowered black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars, we want our kids to swim too. Many cities and towns across the country and not just in the Jim Crow segregated South. And I, and I always say that because it's such an illusion, this idea that segregation and discrimination was exclusively a Southern problem yesterday or today. Um, decided to drain their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. I, in the course of writing, the some of us traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, to the major park in the center of the city called Oak Park, um, which used to have one of those grand resort-style pools. And effective January 1st, 1959, the city council voted to close the pool, drain it, back up truckloads of dirt, fill it in, feed it over with grass. Not only did they do that to avoid integration, they also closed down the entire Parks and Recreation Department of Montgomery. They sold off the animals in the zoo and they kept it closed. The entire Parks and Rec Department for a decade in Montgomery, Alabama. We were not well nigh to 1970 before there was that public good and public amenity opened back up to the people of Montgomery. And even after they did that, they never rebuilt the pool. And so I use that, Bill and Professor Gillespie, as a, as, a, as a metaphor to help explain what happened to the American dream and to the middle class, which always required a, a big public foundation of support um, to make the, the, the nice things in life attainable to most families. And what was once a public good became a private luxury. You can see that with college, which used to be free and picked up by the government, and now is, is a debt for diploma system. You can see that with um, the way in which we used to make a government floor that was higher, that allowed a day's work to not leave you coming home in poverty. And yet we let that sink to let the private you know, profiteers exploit labor. All of these changes in our, in our economy have really come at a time when the majority of white people turn their backs on the formula that helped build the middle class and digging deep into the sociology about what that was about. So much of it was about race, racism, racial resentment, the idea that they don't want to share across lines of race with people that they've been taught to disdain and distrust. And of course, who does that actually benefit in the end, 50 years later? Just a very, very narrow self-interested elite that is now running away with the spoils of the economy that we all work so hard um, to contribute to. Hey, Andra, I, I know you were going to have a re, want to respond to that, but I thought about you when I read in the book that um, the state of Virginia, in, in a similar move to what happened with swimming pools, actually closed its public schools to all people, whites and blacks, rather than integrate. And that made me think about you, Andra. Well, um, so, uh, Heather, I'm, I'm from Virginia, and so you think about Prince Edward County, so if you think about the states mm -hmm. that were involved in Brown versus Board of Education, you know, the response to, to, to integration and to Brown was to shut down the Prince Edward County school system. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, white uh, residents created their own private school that they went to, and uh, black residents scrambled to try to find education for their children. 
So if you had means or family, then you could send them out of town so that they could go to school in another locality. But there were some families who didn't have that type of access and didn't mm-hmm. have that type of network who, you know, lost education for, you know, a number of years. And so, you know, for the longest time, the private school, when I was growing up, it was Prince Edward Academy. Like, you know, I knew about it like, when, on snow days, right, because it would be closed, right? It maintained itself. And I think a lot of us forget that there are private schools, um, often religious-based private schools that were opened between the 1950s and early 1970s, whose origins are solely based on segregation and people not wanting mm-hmm. to send their kids to school uh, with, with, with African-Americans. So, you know, I don't disagree with your premise, Heather, that, um, that, that a lot of this is shooting oneself in the foot. So it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. All titles I thought about, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But I I, I want to start this issue of power more um, and -hmm. thinking about sort of like people derive a power. There's some intrinsic value that some people sort of put into cutting off one's nose despite one's face, despite the fact that it looks ridiculous from the outside uh, Mm -hmm. to do that. And so when Montgomery chooses to, you know, you know, uh, fill in its pool so that it doesn't close its parks. So it doesn't have to integrate. Yeah, it's really stupid. It shows a lack of foresight. But on the other hand, it is an assertion of power that's actually really important mm-hmm. here. So how uh, so how do we factor that into the discrimination uh, to our sort of understanding, I guess, of uh, sort of you know what factors influence decision making and and sort of like what strategic calculus is is at play here? Because I think sometimes we look at this from uh, what appears to us to be a rational standpoint. And some of this stuff is is irrational. If I'm going to sort of tie this back to a lot of things that we talk about, um, uh, so so this will uh, be somewhat uh, obscure. But one of my other colleagues, Alan Abramowitz, is on this show pretty frequently, and one of his uh, uh, teachers was William Riker at, at the University of Rochester. Uh, and uh, they were trying to figure out how people voted uh, because, you know, mm-hmm. honestly, there is a legitimate argument for people not showing up to vote if they don't actually care about the election or if they don't think that the election outcome is going to be big. And and, and their contribution to this literature is they added in their equation this term D. And so this D is everything else, whether it's your civics training, whether it's the feeling of power, whether it's just the good vibes that you feel from having performed a civic duty. And that outweighs all of the costs of voting that uh, never seem to be offset by this notion that you're probably going to be the person who casts the deciding vote in an election. And so it seems like when it comes to racism, there is this equivalent of a devalue, this thing, this sort of catch-all term that sort of captures all of this extra stuff that is really hard to quantify and that in the long run shouldn't make mm-hmm. sense and, 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 and shouldn't be logical, but does actually sort of form this really perverse racial logic. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Um, well, probably one of the smartest people to ever write on these issues was W.E.B. Du Bois, and I think he said it best, and we've all just been catching up, in his seminal work, Black Reconstruction in America, which is to talk about how White people and black people in the South who were poor laborers had so much in common and yet feared and hated each other um, because the white elite had offered, instead of paying white people a living wage in the South, had offered them instead of material wages, a psychological wage of whiteness. And that is absolutely what I'm contending with in the book and saying that that sense of status hierarchy, the sense of knowing that you are among the respected class in a society, that you look like and are on the side of the, the Donald Trump, right, the, the, the millionaire who says, I'm with you. I am, I, am, I am on your team. I have your back. That is extremely powerful and, in fact, is worth often more to many white Americans than actually having health care, than actually being able to reliably count on a good job, than actually being able to turn on their tap and know that clean water is flowing, and all of these other things that are extremely important to human thriving that are nonetheless always being pitted against this psychological wage of whiteness. And the question is, you know, this is where I thought you were going when you talked about power. I'm, I'm, you know, having dug so deeply into this question of looking at the 
history of this country through the zero-sum lens from, you know, before our founding through to the last election, I emerged from it much more focused on the people who are selling racist ideas for their own profit than those who are desperate enough to, to buy those ideas. It feels like that has been the constant, has been the way that the wealthy and the powerful have from the very beginning and the creation of the idea of the white race to separate white laborers from black enslaved people and indigenous enslaved people. Um, the, that has been the goal. And that has been the result. When you have, for example, um, a party that still wins the majority of white voters and yet uses its power to give only a wealthy minority tax cuts, to gut the, the public goods that we hold in common, that refuses uh, to go along with a pandemic response bill and the American Rescue Plan that has something in it for every single American, including $1,400 survival checks and unemployment insurance and, and efforts to speed vaccines and open up schools and, and the response they have uh, to justify not voting for this help for the American people, black, white, and brown, is to run to the border and talk about immigration, is to explicitly say, um, as a re Republican congresswoman from South Carolina said, I'm not voting for the American Rescue Plan because Joe Biden wants to open the border instead of open schools. How is that helping our children, right? To, to have Fox News uh, run on the day of the American Rescue Plan signing, um, you know, a whole wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Dr. Seuss as if those, you know, a handful of racist images that Dr. Seuss's own estate were decided, you know, they didn't want to sell anymore was somehow a democratic plot to cancel white America and everything white America loves and believes in. Like this is this is the tool, right? The, the racism is the tool of the elite. And of course, it requires the, the willing adoption of these racist ideas um, by, you know, tens of millions of people. And yet whose interest does it ultimately serve? This country has lost so much because of an ideology of white supremacy and this belief in a hierarchy of human value. And of course that scarcity is a, um, is a self-reinforcing cycle, right? Because when you have a ladder that is so steep where if you are at the top, you can you know, make a space rocket to launch yourself into the, into the outer space for yourself with your own private money and don't, don't need NASA. Um, but if you are at the bottom, you know, your carburetor can, the only thing I can think of is crap out, but I'm trying to think of a better word. Your carburetor can die. Excuse me. Um, your carburetor can die and you can therefore, you know, lose your job and then lose your apartment and then lose your kids. Right. And that nothing about our social contract protects someone from that. If it is that steep, the ladder, then yes, people are going to want to climb up that rung and kick down to make sure that they're not close to that bottom, which is a living hell. That's not what we have to have in this society. That is a choice that we continue to make when we drain the public pool rather than share it across lines of race in an increasingly diverse America. So a yeah, couple I mean, of things you said really, go ahead, Andra. Sorry, I mean, I think probably as a rejoinder to that, I mean, I think thinking about power in that way is helpful. It's also power, it's also helpful to think about sort of how that could be internalized individually. So you mentioned, you talked about Bacon's Rebellion in the, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just this idea sort of like after that, it really starts to solidify. I mean, you know, I I am very persuaded by the historians who, you know, remind us that like slavery really did start in 1619 and we don't have to think about it, but we think about it gelling in 1640. That's the old historiography um, that folks think about. And then after Bacon's Rebellion, where it looked like uh, white indentured servants and black slaves were figuring out how to get in cahoots against their white masters. And then all of a sudden, it becomes very, very clear. Slavery is a black thing. Indentured servitude is gone. And so you might not have two pennies to rub together as a white person, but at least you are not a slave. And that whiteness mm -hmm. and that value, right, is what uh, people can feel like. So even though, you know, many people who perhaps voted for Donald Trump will never be in Donald Trump's economic echelon, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There is this value that they have as white that they feel is being threatened when they see excellence coming from communities of color and success coming from communities of color mm -hmm. that they resent or they see people accessing it. And I just think it's important for us to always recognize the fact that people are placing what to some people might look like an irrational value on their white identity 
and that the, the mm-hmm. history that's laden in that, and that makes them do things that might actually go against their personal, economic, health, other types of interests. Yep. So, so Heather, I want to I want to jump in if I may, okay. because I think both of what both both what you and Andrew are talking about, I want to go back to your book on it. Uh, for example, you say something really important. I think um, you say everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. Whites have been told that there is something so wrong with black and brown people you don't want to be in with them. You talk about the brutal uh, racial hierarchical ladder that um, black people have to uh, climb if they want to seek equality and how whites continue to push them down that ladder. Um, And so in many ways, a lot of the impressions that we have today of the zero-sum proposition really do have their roots in slavery, don't they? I mean, it's the beginning mm-hmm. of how white people viewed African Americans and what has continued uh, to make it difficult for some whites to want to put themselves into that same rank of human beings. Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. I mean, I think Professor Gillespie put it very well. I, I do touch on the Bacon's Rebellion as the sort of beginning of racial slavery as a tool to get to create that zero sum, that idea that white people are going to be on an us side together collectively, no matter what their class and station in life, and that there will be an inferior them on the other side, that, that even the poorest white man will, uh, will be uh, a step above and have more rights than and more self-esteem. Um, it, it absolutely does come from the, the justification for the original economic model in this country, which was stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor, this idea of needing to create this hierarchy of human value, this, this sense of, of, of a taxonomy of racial, um, you know, of, of, of caste, of racial, of racial worth. And if you think about some of the justifications for slavery, because, right, it had to be justified, um, their stereotypes and and lies that persist to this day, um, whether it's about uh, black people being needing to be controlled um, uh, because of you know sort of criminal or otherwise uh, kind of nefarious tendencies, or it's about black laziness. So they we would need to be forced to work, right? And that's why we had to be enslaved because we wouldn't work just for you know a living wage. We had to be uh, punished and tortured into working, right? And so those those stereotypes, which do persist to this day, to a degree that I will say that I was um, quite disheartened uh, to be digging into the you know public opinion data and the, the deep sociological research to find that, for example, the the majority of white moderates and white conservatives believe agree with the statement that black people take more from society than we give which is truly rich, uh, given how much the wealth in this country has been created by, uh, on, by stolen black labor and how much uh, our wealth has been denied and robbed uh, you know, through to the financial crisis um, and how much more we work for you know, sub, sub, sub-living wages um, that fuel the profits of, of, a, of, of, of big corporations. Uh, I, Sam Burmistaz is uh, telling me if I don't get to a break soon, he's going to reach over here and uh, and, and qu- shut me up. Uh, so let me do this. Let me take a break. We will come back. We have so much more to talk about on our show today with Heather McGee and Andre Gillespie, but let's get these messages out of the way. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emory University's Professor Andrew Gillespie and I are talking today to Heather McGee, the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone, and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, I don't want to run out of time, Heather, 
uh, to talk at some point about the uh, what you see as the ways that we can come together. You're, this is in many ways a very optimistic book, uh, despite the fact you tell us how much all of us have lost as we have pursued these policies of racism. So I want to get to that. But before we do, and because we're here in the South, I think a really terrific example of, of how racism and slavery uh, have hurt all people here in Georgia and the South is the story of Hinton Rowan Helper, which you tell in your book. He wrote a book called The Impending Crisis of the South. He was an unrepentant racist, and yet his book became incredibly controversial because he spoke out about the damages that slavery was doing to Southern society and the economy. Tell us a little about that. Hinton Rowan Helper was an avowed racist, and yet he wrote a book uh, where he argued that slavery was making the South poorer, and it was largely because it empowered the plantation class, which was a minority of the you know Southern population. It was the white Southern elite who held all the land and power and money and who had really been in charge of writing the rules in, in Southern society. Um, and that because the plantation economy did not require investment in public goods, right? The, the, the oligarchs didn't need, um, you know, a well-educated white workforce or a well-educated black workforce. They didn't need, um, you know, public schools and libraries. They didn't need a thriving small business sector. They had a captive labor force. They needed only a handful of white workers per, per plantation. And the market for their their raw goods was with the northern wage laborers, and then in the global, uh, in the global economy. And so, um, that meant that they dis they disinvested from. They did not pay for public goods. Um, Hinton Rowan Helper counted the number of libraries and schools in southern states versus free states, and found just a shocking disparity. All out of whack with population, right? Maine having multiple times more schools than Georgia, for example, uh, in the run-up to the Civil War. And so I use that as an example of sort of an early, you know, observer of what was happening to perpetuate racism and slavery to the commons and how detrimental it was to, you know, what we know to be the, the springboards for economic opportunity, things like public libraries and schools and infrastructure, um, and how that persists to this day. Because, you know, the in pursuit of white supremacy, Southern politicians and political elites have maintained, you know, for a century after the Civil War, a tight grip on the franchise, right? Poll tax states, for example, had in 1944 uh, a turnout rate in the presidential of 18% as opposed to 69% nationally, right? There was this sense that we, that the Southern oligarchs wanted to, to make it harder for people, you know, of all races to vote. Obviously, the, the total control was for black political power and that threat. Um, but you, you create this system where you don't invest in, in the public goods. Um, you know, you see those disparities still to this day. And in fact, a professor at Harvard named Nathan Nunn calculated that the per capita income was lower in 2000 in counties that had slavery versus non-slave counties in the South. So it wasn't just, you know, that the South is poorer today, which we know that it is in, in the large part, but it was actually the presence of slavery per county that made a difference still to, you know, in the year 2000, over 100 years after the end of in chattel slavery. And so this formula of, of sort of draining the pool of public goods or never filling it in in the first place of, of using the, the twin kind of controls of, of racism and concentrated wealth to shortchange the vehicles that we know are necessary to drive broadly shared economic prosperity has been, in many ways, the story of the South and the story of the United States more largely, particularly since the Civil War um, required an integration of the, of, of the commons and of the mechanisms uh, for, for economic growth. 
You know, Andra, um, Heather talks about how there wasn't an investment uh, in, in, in the South of, of slave days uh, in schools because they didn't feel it was necessary. It, what's interesting, if you bring that forward, um, in the aftermath of Brown v. Board of Education, when the SEG school system was created in Georgia and other states, this, we're talking back the late 50s, early 60s, and yet for decades after that, um, the state of Georgia has struggled to find ways to give enough money to the public schools across the state to, mm -hmm. in some ways, equalize public education. That's still a vestige. The Quality Basic Education Act back in 1984 was an effort to start paying back mm -hmm. those schools that had been had suffered because black students were uh, so marginalized. We're still struggling to make that right. And, and I think it's complex, and so I want to expand that beyond the South um, to think about sort of what this looks like. So, you know, when integration finally happens in the South, and so it's not happening in 1954 and 1955, we're looking at the 60s and then to the 1970s when these things start to happen. Um, you know, do people realize that uh, when uh, you are going to integrate school systems and you've got, like, you know, redundant high schools and middle schools, that sometimes what was a black high school ends up becoming a middle school because that's all it's equipped for. And it's not just a sort of size kind of issue. It's the idea that, like, those high schools, those black high schools didn't have the type of infrastructure and equipment that would be appropriate for a high school, like a white high school. So, like, you know, the science labs aren't going to be up to snuff. And so it just makes sense to turn those into middle schools where people aren't doing that type of advanced work. Um, across the board. Um, and then even looking at, you know, what struggles look like for school funding outside of the South. You know, um, you know, by and large in this country, our public education systems are uh, funded at the local level based on property taxes. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reluctance uh, to try to equalize across school systems that people will, uh, you know, lose their cookies over that. Um, you know, the classic place where I think about this is in New Jersey. Um, you know, where there had to be a state Supreme Court decision to do uh, equalization. Um, and, and that project uh, never completely fully came to fruition from what I um, um, from what I understand. Yeah, but, too. you know, and, and, and then you have these sort of balkanized systems where everybody has their own town. Everybody has their own system. It's different than what we have here in Georgia, where the county still retain control over over the school system. Because we ended up like New Jersey, where every small town has its own thing, because nobody wanted to, you know, go to school with people who are of a different race or a different religion than they were, right? And you end up with a property tax system that ends up being really, really burdensome and untenable. Um, and so when we think about that, and we actually even try to apply that to uh, discussions about um, incorporation here in Metro Atlanta, where there are lots of towns, Heather, uh, that are, have been created in the last few years out of unincorporated mm -hmm. uh, places because, uh, you know, people are always dissatisfied with county-level government, and so you always want to ask, and so we don't know for sure um, and haven't always found uh, the, the evidence for this, but it, the question always comes up, well, what's the real motivation behind wanting to create a town? And so it's something mm -hmm. that my colleague Michael Leo Owens and I, you know, have, have, have looked for. Um, and so we are, you know, are asking this, and we'll be honest, where we can't find sort of racial resentment as the predictor of, of what sort of around creating a town. But, you know, I moved to Atlanta sort of right at the height of the sort of this incorporation boom, and it just seemed really odd as to who was trying to incorporate mm -hmm. And who wasn't? And then, in particular, how Black communities were like, "Okay, we're going to get left holding the tax bag, so we got to go do this too." So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just been a fascinating story to kind of live in mm -hmm. and, and, and watch in the last twenty years in this state. Mm -hmm. um, it, mm -hmm. Heather, we do have to get to our final break of the show, um, but I, I appreciate the point Andre just made. I want to address before we do turn to your hopefulness about how we can work together. One last thing that I think you've you've kind of touched on it, but it's so crucial to our understanding of uh, the problems we face today uh, in the racial divide. Uh, and that is the creation of wealth and the way mm -hmm. in which for decades the segregated uh, American system in so many ways uh, kept uh, people of color at a disadvantage in being able to build wealth of any kind, home ownership, mm -hmm. uh, 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 laws that forbade uh, or, or rules that forbade blacks from getting mortgages and that sort of thing. So we're now in a situation where blacks are at a disadvantage in trying to create wealth. But more and more, as you point out, that's a problem that whites face 
as well. The middle class is no longer, you talk about the football that used to be the middle class in the middle and what poor people on one end of the football and, uh, and, and rich people on the other is now like a bow tie where there's a tiny shrinking middle class and it's rich and poor on opposite sides, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout the sum of us, I, I make pains to take pains to remind people of the way that racism shaped economic opportunity. Um, I probably mentioned too often uh, the mechanism of, ra- of redlining, which was the federal government policy starting in the New Deal when, when, when the government really got into the business of, of making mortgages affordable uh, for working and middle-class families and in subsidizing the massive creation of, of housing. And both of those mechanisms, the federal government put racial restrictions on. Um, and the assumption there never substantiated was that black people were bad credit risks um, and that integrated communities were, you know, were, were unstable communities. And, and that was how the government segregated America. Um, the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein goes very deeply into the details. People want to learn more. But what that has meant is that today, it's not about income and education. It's not about a paycheck. It's about what you have left over, what's sitting in the bank, what's the asset value of your house. And when we talk about wealth, we are really talking about where history shows up in your wallet and where today's economic security is really about compounding interest made on racist decisions often before we were even born to the degree that a black household headed by someone who graduated from college is on average going to have less wealth than a white household headed by someone who dropped out of high school. And that has nothing to do with our sort of myths of bootstraps and effort and all of that and everything to do with racist policymaking. And so what I talk about is that today, that racial wealth divide and the other racial economic divides that are related to that wealth divide are costing our overall economy. You've got McKinsey and Citigroup putting out these reports, calculating it in the trillions, right, to lost economic growth in this country. The simple idea that, of course, we want all of our players on the field scoring points. But when there is this belief that we're not actually on the same team, where you have the majority of white voters rooting against the economic success and the programs and initiatives that will create more economic success for their neighbors of color out of the fear that that means that they will necessarily lose something, then you have an overall sort of stymied economy. And the only people who truly benefit are uh, the people who are, you know, in enjoying the economic and political status quo today, right? The billionaires who made 53% more money during the pandemic profiteering while uh, tens of millions of people were out of work, right? The 1% of the population that owns more wealth than the entire middle class, while at the same time nearly half of adult workers are paid low wages that are too low um, for them to meet their basic needs for utilities and, and food and rent. I've got to get to a final break of the show. When we come back, more with Andre Gillespie and Heather McGee. I really do want to get a few minutes to talk about Heather the solidarity dividend, which you describe in the book, and which is the optimistic note uh, that you speak of in your At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. Book, we'll be right back. We're back with Professor Andre Gillespie and Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. By the way, Heather, I should point out that I got an email from a listener, uh, Clance Ellis, who says, you don't have to go to Montgomery in Virginia to find problems with how... Th- how whites and blacks suffered. Um, in 1968, he came back from Vietnam and found that the YMCA had closed its doors rather than permit black Vietnam veterans uh, to join. So right here in the state, we saw examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Heather, mm-hmm. one of the reviewers of your book have, uh, have almost all said that one of the things about this book is that you write with a charitable 
feeling with a kindness about what all of us are capable of uh, accomplishing together. And you mm-hmm. call this the solidarity dividend. What does that mean mm-hmm. to you? So this, the Sum of Us is really a book about a journey I took across the country. And really everywhere I looked, I began to see signs of what I began to call the solidarity dividend. And it's this idea of what we can accomplish together through collective action when we join up and link arms across lines of race. Basically, despite the sort of American mythology about rugged individualism uh, and the worship of the private market, right, the the things that really matter in life, I, I can't accomplish on my own, right? I can't fund my kid's school better. I can't clean up the air in my neighborhood. I can't uh, ensure uh, health care and clean water out of the tap um, on my own. If I work in uh, on a shop floor, or warehouse warehouse floor, you know, I can't raise wages uh, on my own. It really does take collective action. And in a diverse society, when we're divided, we are conquered um, by those who want to keep the rules rigged exactly in their favor. And so what I began to see was that in Richmond, California, one of the most polluted places in the country, there was this multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-origin coalition of people, neighbors who put aside their differences to, to take on the big polluter. Uh, in that case, it was Chevron. Um, and when uh, a massive concession to this you know, refinery expansion deal that was going to happen and raise the pollution in their already polluted community, um, and, and when a community benefits agreement that made publicly owned solar that created jobs and lowered a utility bill costs for the residents. Um, in, in Lewiston, Maine, Maine being the whitest state in the nation, um, a, a dying mill town was reanimated and revitalized by the presence of black, African, Muslim, refugees, and immigrants, whom many white, you know, grassroots ordinary folks kind of reached out and helped to build something together that really revitalized their community, despite, you know, what politics was telling them to do, you know, despite the scaremongering and fearmongering and demonization of immigrants. Um, the fight for 15 is a solidarity dividend, the, the way that dozens of towns and cities across the country have raised their wages through multiracial worker organizing. I heard from a white woman um, who'd worked in fast food her whole life who said, I used to believe the us versus them stuff. And now I see that it's not about us versus them. For us to come up, they've got to come up too. Um, Whether we're white, black, or brown, she told me, as, as long as we're divided, we're conquered, right? So this is the kind of sort of move into collective action and seeing our collective power as human beings who who really do share so much in common. We have so many common problems and need common solutions um, that I think is possible, that is happening all over the country in small ways. And frankly, in many ways, what we're seeing today, the nearly $2 trillion American Rescue Plan is a massive refilling of the public pool, right? Cutting child poverty in half um, because of cross-racial um, organizing and a multiracial coalition that put Democrats in uh, in in the power with the power to be able to deliver that. And it's something that we're seeing more and more of the the American jobs plan that President Biden has proposed would do so many great things for every corner of this country, rural broadband, making sure that an auto mechanic in a small town is able to get reliably on the Wi-Fi to be able to repair that carburetor, right? Um, (laughs) And, you know, um, tearing up all the lead pipes in this country and replacing them, right? All of these incredible ways that can, um, can, to to reinvest in ourselves as a people, which we've been unwilling to do as our people have grown more diverse. And yet I do see glimpses of that changing, finally, um, if we have enough people who are willing to put aside this false hierarchy of human value um, and, and invest in one another again. Andre, the uh, all the things that Heather is talking about, ways, things, issues that we have to deal with in our lives, uh, if we work together, she suggests, uh, maybe the beginning of the answer to the first thing she asks in her book, which is, why can't we have nice things? And everything from minimum wage to climate change to better schools, I think Heather argues, we would be able to solve together 
we're never going to solve them if we continue this hierarchical notion of white versus black and brown. And I think sort of in addition to that, there also has to be a, a mindset frame change. Um, so, you know, for some people, these are things that you're supposed to do by yourself. I think the last time I was on the show, we were talking about the COVID vaccine as a public good, whether or not the government should have been involved in that. And the truth of the matter is the government had to be involved in that because there's no way they would have gotten the funding in the market to be able to get that done as quickly as possible and to do it cheaply so that everybody can get it. And so I think we have to understand that scale matters and that the, and that this is the time where working collectively helps. This is not necessarily endorsement of doing everything collectively, but there are big things where we do need to work together. And I think Heather identifies that. There's one more thing I want to go back to something like right before the break. When you were talking about redlining, um, Heather, um, it, it struck me that like that is presented in a facially neutral way. So the redlining mm -hmm. that happens privileged certain types of communities. So it privileged single family homes uh, that were unattached. Um, and it, it, it separated those off as being desirable for loans, whereas sort of older urban housing, uh, you know, contiguous housing stock uh, where black people live uh, was, was, was deemed not. But, you know, nothing in the law or nothing in the regulation said black or white. Um, and that that's the stuff that we have to be looking out for when we look at that disparate effect. Andrew Gillespie, you always get us thinking. Heather, you got about 20 seconds to respond to that. <laughs> um, so the original redlining agreed. So the single-family zoning, which is still in 75%, that requirement is still in 75% of, of our metropolitan areas to this day, and it's absolutely a, a sort of colorblind systemic racist practice that keeps affordable affordable housing out of reach for millions of Americans, white, black, Heather, and brown Heather, today. Heather McGee, if I don't stop you now, I will not have time to tell people they really need to read your book, The Sum <laughs> of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It was a joy to have you on. Andre Gillespie, thank you. We'll be back with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Of course, continue wearing your mask. And if you don't have a vaccine yet, you can go out and find one now. See you all tomorrow.